Well, it has been a busy time to be in the Times Union newsroom. Here's a taste of some of the headlines that we ran this week. Omicron is likely peaking here this month and positive cases have dropped. An arrest was finally made in the tragic shooting death of a 15-year-old in Albany last May. The state's first female governor revealed her first budget proposal. An RPI student took a viral selfie with a shirtless Ryan Fitzpatrick at a Sub-Zero NFL playoff game. And the Mohawk Hudson Humane Society saw more than $50,000 in donations made in honor of Betty White's 100th birthday. What a week! Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, the Times Union was featured in New York Magazine this week for its reporting on the 2018 Schoharie limo crash. We'll talk to journalist Ben Ryder Howe about the piece. The investigation really had been, at many key points, driven by the Times Union. We'll talk to New York State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins. I believe it's criminal to hold people merely because they don't have the money to get out. And we'll hear about the efforts to build the city of Albany in the virtual world of Minecraft. It really does look like Albany, especially the Empire State Plaza. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. In early October of 2018, 20 people died after a limousine crashed in Schoharie County. It was, and remains, the deadliest transportation disaster in a decade. The story's still unfolding, though, three years later. This week, New York Magazine published a deep dive into the tragedy. I'm going to turn it over now to Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler for more. We tend to use the Eagle to draw audio attention to journalism that appears in the Times Union, but we're making an exception of sorts for this next segment, which concerns an article by veteran journalist Ben Ryder Howe that appears in the latest issue of New York Magazine. It's a deep dive on the October 2018 limousine crash in Schoharie County that left 20 people dead and prompted numerous investigations into why a decrepit stretch limo was allowed to remain on the road. Howe's article acknowledges the work of Times Union business reporter Larry Rulison, whose reporting on the disaster explored the mysterious story of Shahed Hussein, the owner of the limousine and an FBI informant who had played a key role in some of the agency's most controversial post-9-11 anti-terror sting operations including one that resulted in the conviction of a prominent Albany imam. 
I'm happy to be joined by Ben Howe on the line from New York City and Larry Rulison on the line from Delmar. Gentlemen, thanks so much for taking the time. It's great to be here. So, Ben, how did you get involved in this story and why did you want to not only talk to Larry about the case, but make his experience as a journalist kind of part of the larger narrative of crime and the terrible loss experienced by the families of the victims? So in the summer of 2020, late summer, I was in Cooperstown, New York for the weekend. I went to meet somebody on a Saturday morning at a cafe in downtown Cooperstown. And as I was waiting for her, I picked up the Times Union. On the cover below the fold, there was an article about how COVID had delayed the trial of the, um, the owner of the limousine that had crashed. Um, I remembered the crash and uh, read, the, read the story. And, and then I you know, didn't take very long to realize that there was a lot more going on than just the crash. I talked to my editor and I said, you know, was this something that would be of interest? And I didn't realize it would take, um, you know, a full year and a half to, you know, to get the story ready. Um, but it did. I didn't realize until probably four or five months later to my discredit, just how uh, heroic Larry's role in, in the saga was. People in Albany, sources for the story, would say, oh, well, you must be familiar with Larry's reporting. And I said, yeah, of course. Uh, but it didn't dawn on me immediately that he had his central role, you know, or that, that the investigation really had been at many key points driven by the Times Union. Larry, how did you end up being the TU's primary investigative reporter on the crash? It's not your average business story. So can you tell the story of how how you ended up uh, diving in? I was in the the right place at the right time, in a, in a sense. You know, I just happened that I was the first reporter in that day, the Monday after the crash. A lot of the reporters had been working that weekend. And actually, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I totally missed the boat here. But I had read the uh, New York Times, a New York Times article or that had mentioned that there was like a database for people who uh, had permission to drive limos. And so I, I looked it up and I realized they owned a, a motel. So all of a sudden I was thinking this is a business story. And so I said, well, the first thing I could do is go out to the motel that the Hussein family that owned the limo owned. That's how I started my involvement. I mean, I, I always uh, approach it as a business story. And in a lot of ways it, it is. You know, the trail, the, follow the money, follow the addresses, follow the names, and that's how it started. Oh, Larry, I'm not revealing um, anything that you haven't written eloquently about in the Times Union when I note that not quite a year after the crash, you were diagnosed with a particularly nasty form of cancer that first presented itself as a, a burst appendix. When I first spoke to Ben, and I think it was back in April, I told him about how you filed a particularly gripping Sunday story about 
Shahed Hussein's um, work as an FBI informant. And it was a story that you filed in the wee hours of the morning, I think the day before, you know, you drove down to New York City for, for surgery, which is just remarkable to me. Your dedication to the story was something else. Yeah, I, you know, if you can put yourself in my shoes at the time, I go, oh, I don't know if I'm coming back from this operation. So I was like, I got to file this sucker. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, they said it was going to be a pretty 12-hour operation. It was going to be really bad. So, And I had been doing a lot of stuff up until then. And in fact, I didn't know I was going to have the operation till like right up before. I mean, I was talking to... Um, people like right up until you know a day before my operation and um so that was that was why i fi i think yeah i filed it like at 3 a.m because i was like i just want to get it done and so whatever happens happens and then at least it's filed uh it was important to me the big question mark ben that both of you have tried to answer over the course of of many many months and even years now is whether or not Shahed Hussein, who was the father of Nauman Hussein, who was uh, operating the limo company at the time of, of the crash, Shahed Hussein had, as far as we know, gone into surgery and he was recuperating in Pakistan or something like that. But the question of whether or not Shahed Hussein was in some way or had been in some way inoculated from legal consequences connected to a lot of his this sort of bizarre network of, of business ventures on a whole lot of issues because of his work for the FBI as an informant, as an undercover operative. I mean, what are the chances that we'll ever get a definitive yes or no on that question? For me, one of the questions was, will we ever get to the bottom of this? I called guy named Dick Lair, who is um, a, a longtime professor of journalism in Boston at, at Boston University um, and a um, former member of the Spotlight team, the famous Spotlight team at the Boston Globe. Dick Lair was, was part of the team that ultimately exposed Whitey Bulger. I called him and I said, I told him about Larry, I told him about the Times Union, and I told him as much as I could about the Hussein family and, and the limousine. Uh, it's a lot, it's a lot to dump on somebody. And he was very patient he listened to me for a long time. And, and he said, well, you know, in our case with Whitey Bulger, it took 20 odd years to finally break down the barriers that were protecting him from protecting the truth really from being exposed. There's also just a very dark story, a psychopath, a, a, you know, really a, a mass murderer who was being protected. In, in that case, it was the mid-90s when a, a courageous judge in Boston decided that the time had come and, and it was, you know, the FBI had to come clean. And in Dick Lair's case, he said to me, you know, he said this was, this was painful and the patience that it required was enormous. He talked about this feeling of disorientation. He wanted to believe that the government was not, you know, we don't have the kind of government that would protect somebody like Whitey Bulger. 
and that made that made the whole process extremely you know painful for him to 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 work on the story but you know they they just kept pushing so i i think about that a lot when i think about where the story is headed the progress the momentum towards kind of you know further discoveries is to me unmistakable and i just think that it's going to it's going to take you know uh, hopefully not much longer but i think you know i do think that we're going to find out more the final scene in your article, Ben, is Nauman Hussein's sentencing after his guilty plea to 20 counts of criminally negligent homicide. That is the 17 passengers who were in the limousine that day in October 2018. Two people killed in the parking lot of the Apple, Apple Barrel Country Store in Schoharie when the limo came just rocketing through the parking lot and the driver of the limo also dead. Uh, Nauman Hussein uh, took that that guilty plea and, and received no prison time. He got five years of probation and a thousand hours of community service. You were both present for that sentencing, which was moved to, what was it, a gymnasium or an auditorium in a, in a nearby school? Because they, of course, the court knew that there was going to be a large crowd for it. How would you describe the mood in the room as that sentencing was taking place, as the victim impact statements were being undelivered, I've, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I, just people wailing, screaming, swearing at the judge, just out of like Shakespeare or something. It was reliving it all over, but so much worse because the families were explaining how damage they were and i i don't i've never heard stories of people so physically and mentally damaged by one event all you could just sense was just this incredible feeling of pain and frustration and um the impact statements there were so many of them because there were so many victims that it got darker and darker in the gym as the sun went down and and it was anticlimactic in a way because everybody knew that, you know, the world was moving on. I mean, at least from the criminal phase, there was a, a, a feeling of, I think, um, of, yeah, of anger and frustration and, and, and resignation at the same time. It was, uh, it was intense. It's a terrific piece. It is, of course, compelling beyond belief, often very painful to read. And um, I thank you both for, for talking about this, um, this important journalism. Ben Ryder Howe, uh, whose story appears in the new issue of New York Magazine, and Larry Rulison of the Times Union, still on the job. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You can read all of Larry Rulison's coverage in the aftermath of the 2018 crash, as well as all the stories and issues we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. This week, Governor Kathy Hochul officially proposed a $216 billion budget, her first ever since taking office following the resignation of her scandal-plagued predecessor, Andrew Cuomo. So we hope to close the books on this winter surge soon so we can turn the page and open the book on our 2023 budget outlook and focus on the post-pandemic future. The day after the budget proposal came out, Casey Seiler sat down virtually with Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins for an upstate business event that was live-streamed on the Times Union's Facebook page and YouTube channel. 
the Yonkers Democrat, now in her fourth year of leading the Senate, says so far Hochul's budget proposal is a good start. The devil is always in the details, but at least we are looking at the same details. During the hour-long discussion, they also discussed the contentious issue of recent criminal justice reforms, a topic that's all but certain to make a few headlines during this nascent legislative session. Here's Casey Seiler again with the Senate Majority Leader on changes to bail law that took effect in 2020. There's been a lot of data dropped by the Division of Criminal Justice Services in recent weeks concerning rearrest rates in the first year after the slate of criminal justice reforms were passed by the legislature and signed by the governor, which was one of the major um, uh, policy initiatives, as you noted, passed by the, the Democratic majority after you, you came into, into the majority in 2019. Now, both sides of this debate have derived their own interpretations from that data. Where do you come down on what those numbers suggest about whether there need to be tweaks made, uh, you know, in particular to the bail changes that were put into effect? We now know that 98% of the people who get out uh, without bail do not commit any serious crime you know, while they're awaiting their trial. And I want to say behind those numbers are people who are now still able to go to work, now still able to, to maintain housing, now still able to support their families. And you don't have the crumbling that happens around people who are held indiscriminately uh, just because they don't have a few bucks for a minor uh, accusation able to continue to function in the society until their day in court. They are still going to go to court. 98% of them do, and they don't commit any crimes. So, yeah, I think that we have to look at the perspective. It's always hard to change a system that has been the way and the people have been able to build on. I mean, there's a lot of people who have been able to, unfortunately, uh, you know, profit sometimes on the fact that poor people, you know, aren't held because they're poor. I don't want to be part of the system. That speaker doesn't want to be part of that system. And I think we'll look at the data. We will continue to look at the data. And obviously, uh, you know, the data will allow us and inform us if there is something else we have to do. I don't want to, you know, overinterpret myself your your remarks, but I am not hearing a great willingness to, for example, look at as some people have suggested, adding dangerousness, dangerousness to a community, putting that back as a, a reason to deny someone bail, for example. You're hearing what I'm saying, which is, let's look at the data. I mean, listen, the sad part of people's, uh, the sad part of how the sentencing has worked, how this, this justice system has worked. And again, it's not me, it is the data that says that a black person committing the same crime as a white person, all, you know, the majority of the time, uh, this black person is sentenced uh, for longer time. <laughs> you know, the bail is higher. There is, has been a disparity in the treatment for the same crime, 
depending upon, sadly, the color of a person's skin, if you're black, if you're brown, if you're poor, whatever, uh, you wind up spending more time and spending more money. And so we've seen what uh, the system has produced when um, allowed to produce uh, outcomes. And we don't want to continue to perpetuate outcomes because people think that somebody's dangerous and, and therefore uh, they should be held and somebody else who isn't. And I'll, I'll go back to Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, obviously nobody thought he was dangerous because uh, he was out. <laughs> so I don't know how that works, but I know how it has worked. And, and that has to stop. You know, of course, the the argument from the the Republicans in in both houses, as well as of course statewide, is that proponents of of bail reform and the criminal justice changes are pointing out exactly what you're pointing out that the percentage of those who are rearrested for violent felonies is very small. The counter argument to that the Republicans are making is that well, it's very small unless you or someone in your family are the, the victim of one of those you know violent felons who are rearrested. Yeah, but the thing is, they haven't been able to tell me when the bail system was in place as it was before. That's very you know, true. How many yeah. people, you know, so there's no control there. You know, how many people get out on bail and, re, you know, get rearrested because they actually did something? I mean, we all don't, nobody uh, is, is supporting criminality or criminals. Nobody. I think that they have been able to take a talking point. Obviously, people fear. Uh, obviously, we care about public safety, and nobody takes this lightly. But I believe that they've just decided to create, you know, really a boogeyman. Uh, these people don't care about you. They just want criminals out. You're going to be, and it, you know, just just pandering to people's uh, fears and not really being honest. And so when I have an opportunity to be honest, and I know that they don't have any compelling data that shows that everybody who was kept in on bail, you know, they have nothing. So yeah, any crime is too much, but the reality is that I believe it's criminal to hold people merely because they don't have the money to get out. You can watch the recording of the Upstate Business event with Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins at timesunion.com or on our social channels. After the break, would you like to roam around an 8-bit version of Albany? A few dedicated Minecraft enthusiasts are trying to make a virtual version of New York's capital city a reality. If you're enjoying this podcast, Take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's head on into the virtual world here for the next segment. And if a group of volunteer Minecraft builders have anything to say about it, the virtual world is going to look a lot like the real world. They are hard at work crafting an 8-bit replica of the city of Albany. Now, I'm not much of a gamer, but this topic does fascinate me. So I asked business reporter Shayla Cologne to tell me more about this group of builders and their plans. 
tell those of us who may not be gamers or may not have eight-year-olds who are obsessed with Minecraft, um, what, what exactly is Minecraft? Sure. So Minecraft is essentially a virtual world that people can play in. And when they access the game, they can build houses and communities and sort of interact with each other on this game. I would liken it to uh, the virtual game that Dwight Schrute plays in The Office. His like, <laughs> I, ima- I imagine it's exactly like that. Um, have you ever played Minecraft? People probably will not like to hear this. I have not. I've never been much of a gamer, but it is still incredibly interesting. And I almost wish I did after I read about this stuff. The crux of your story here is that uh, a bunch of gamers who I believe, are they local gamers? So it's interesting. This group, there are some local gamers. However, they don't have to be local. They can be from just about anywhere and just have an interest in helping out with this build. The build that we're talking about is this group of gamers has has gotten together and endeavoring to create a full-scale replica of the city of Albany. Yeah, exactly. So it's a one-to-one scale build. And essentially what that means is in Minecraft, one of the game's building blocks is equivalent to roughly one meter in the real world. This group of builders in part of their endeavor are taking Google coordinates, um, so like latitude and longitude off of Google Maps and Google Earth, and they're inserting them into a digital plugin. From there, the coordinates are uploaded to a Minecraft server and allow Mm -hmm. them to build within that space on the server. That's really interesting. Now it's all in eight bit, right? If I'm if I I am looking over my eight year old shoulder while she plays, it, it's like eight bit animation, right? It is. It's really neat, and it's so. If you look at the screenshots, unfortunately, we only have a couple in the story, but it really does look like Albany, especially the Empire State Plaza. I almost felt as though I was standing there looking at the trees and the buildings. That's wild. Now, not being a gamer, it's hard for me to wrap my head around this, but like, what's the point of this? Like, what is their, what is their goal in doing this? Is it just for fun or is there a more practical purpose? From what I gathered, it's really just for fun. They want to replicate the place that they're from, especially this gentleman, Jeff Henderson. He's 22 and I think it's pretty neat that he does all of this and is sort of pioneering the movement. And he just boiled it down to a fierce love for his hometown. He just really loves Albany and the capital region, and he wanted to pay tribute to it. You know, when this is all said and done, when they've built this kind of one-to-one replica, like anybody who plays Minecraft can just kind of wander through it? Sure. So there is a bit of an exception. Anyone who can access the server, which it is a public server, will be able to access the virtual Albany in Minecraft. But on that server, you have to be 13 or older to play. So ah. sorry for the kiddos, but maybe <laughs> in a few years. Gotcha, gotcha. I mean, Albany has pretty unique architecture, I think it's fair to say, like the egg and the Corning Preserve and the Corning Tower and, you know, the whole kind of the capital, the New York State Capitol. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that might be to, you know, get the intricacies of those right. In fact, he said it's an incredibly meticulous process. And because they want to do their due diligence in representing the architecture here in Albany, uh, they have to try and get every detail and every nook and cranny down. And that can take some time. 
does this happen a lot on Minecraft? Like are people recreating their hometowns all over the world or the universe? So I can't necessarily speak to the history of it, but what I do know is that this sort of build the earth movement, which is this group of voluntary gamers who are contributing to the effort, um, it started when one YouTuber named Pippin FTS, we'll just call him Pippin, put out a <laughs> video and said, hey, guess what? We can now go beyond the leaps and bounds of the previous Minecraft dimensions because there's this thing called Cubic Chunks Mod that was released and essentially that extended the virtual world's height and depth dimension. So buildings blocks could go past the limitations that were previously in place. And that's what you're making the game too slow. I mean, did you have to, not being a gamer, like, did you have to, like, do a lot of research for this story to really understand what they were saying? Or is it is it kind of straightforward stuff? I definitely did have to do some research just because I'm not very game savvy. But it wasn't too hard to unearth the basics about it. Um, and this group does a really nice job of laying it out for people on their website. So they pretty much explain what the whole one-to-one scale means and the uh, cubic chunk mod and how that impacts their ability to build in this game. So uh-huh. that was really helpful. And also there was that video by Pippin and several others that sort of gave me uh, a clear outlook on how exactly this works into the fabric of Minecraft. Wow, that's fascinating. Now, they're not going to stop here, right? Like once they finish Albany, they vowed to kind of expand into the greater capital region, right? Oh, definitely. This is a very ambitious group. And while the Northeast branch is focusing on Albany, the capital region and some surrounding areas, there are several other sectors of Build the Earth that are pretty much just trying to build the entire planet into Minecraft. It's pretty neat. You can see photos of the virtual build of Albany in progress at timesunion.com. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Larry Rulison, and Shayla Cologne for their contribution to this episode.